0: The year is 1960. It's an election year. We're in a crowded CBS studio where hot stage lights and large television cameras are pointed at two men. No one speaks but them. Everyone else is in rapt, attentive silence. One of the men is dark-haired with a dour look on his face. The lines run deep beside his mouth, his body thin from illness. Beside him at a podium is a light-haired man with a charming smile and handsome eyes. His skin is tan and smooth, He seems almost impervious to the environment. Beads of sweat roll down the dark-haired man's upper lip. He dabs with a white handkerchief over and over. But it's no use. He can feel the stubble itch his face every time he wipes the sweat away. For those at home watching for the first time on television, the winner is clear. What the men say is unimportant. How they are seen determines everything. For one of them will be the next president of the United States. I'm Zach Lovelace, and this is Circa. Who is the most beautiful person you've ever seen? In real life, in person, whose beauty has captivated you? Think about what it is that was most beautiful about them. Why did they come to mind? Was there a specific element to their body or face or personality that you couldn't look away from, couldn't get enough of? For some people the word beautiful might be a little dated instead it's replaced with words like hot sexy cute or gorgeous but what is it we mean by using all these words to help answer that we're going to need a working definition of beauty the poet john keats wrote beauty is truth truth beauty that is all the history of mankind is the story of humans chasing beauty in this wider philosophical sense beauty is Not just someone that is pleasing, but anything that is pleasing to the senses. Pythagoras, an early Greek thinker, believed that beauty was a mathematical part of the universe, and that it led to moral education. Socrates and Aristotle agreed that beauty is found in order and symmetry. So I'll ask again, what comes to mind when you think of beauty? For many throughout time, the beauty of woman is of the highest regard. Because of this, history is littered with strange inventions and ways of trying to obtain feminine beauty. Perhaps the oldest form of beautifying is makeup. Ancient Sumerians invented lipstick out of pulverized gems to accentuate their mouths. Egyptian women and men would rub coal, a black sulfurous powder, under their eyes, wore lightweight clothing, and started the practice of using soap often while bathing. The Chinese saw beauty in their fingernails, decorating them with gold and silver to represent royalty, dyeing them with egg white or beeswax. The lower classes were banned from using any bright colors on their nails, for those were considered only for the most beautiful. Along those same lines, having tanned skin was considered lowly up until relatively recently. The darkness of the skin signified hard labor, working in the sun. In Europe, looking pale was ideal, Women, such as Elizabeth I, used a blend of vinegar and white lead to make her look as if her skin was made of pearl. This, of course, was poisonous and caused facial scarring. Pick a culture and they have their definition of a beautiful woman, but all of them hold women to be beautiful. Now, of course, it can do a lot for a lady, especially when a lady's got a lot lady can do a lot for that in the bottom and top That song comes from the forgotten gem, the first traveling sales lady, in 1956. By then, of course, corsets were out of vogue, but for the majority of the past 500 years, they've been a must-have. Originating from Italy in the 1500s, the tightening bodice squeezes the wearer into a wasp-like shape and often was constructed with whalebone as the crux of the superstructure. It was even so popular that corsets were designed for men as well, to give them a taut, lean body. For most wearing corsets, it was painful, constricting the ribs and hips to the point of deformation if worn too long. It wasn't until World War I, when steel was in short supply, that the corset began to see its downfall. In the U.S. alone, 28,000 tons of metal were released for use. That's enough to build two battleships, This, along with changing gender roles in society, pushed the corset aside for something more flexible, the brassiere. Pythagoras was not alone in his pining to understand beauty as a mathematical phenomenon. Fibonacci and da Vinci pined over what they knew as the golden ratio. With the help from actor and comedian John Cleese and facial surgeon Stephen Marquat, we can get a better explanation. What Pythagoras realized is that plants and animals grow according to fairly precise mathematical laws. It's not just chance that flowers unfold in beautiful patterns. And the Greeks found the patterns were based on a particular geometrical ratio. But it wasn't until the Renaissance that an Italian did the maths. He figured out that the key to beauty was the ratio of 1 to 1.618. And yet, and you're not going to believe this, 1.618 actually works. Do something like measure the distance from the floor to your navel and then from your navel to your head. If you're well proportioned, the ratio should be 1 to 1.618, and that ratio is seen all over the beautiful body. People started noticing it. Artists noticed that the width of the mouth, and a beautiful face, for example. Yeah. Not in any face, but it had to be beautiful. If a face was beautiful, the width of the mouth was exactly 1.618 times the width of the nose. Really? If the face wasn't beautiful, that wasn't the case. Dentists, yeah. in their dental work, noticed that the upper front tooth was 1.618 times as wide as the next, next tooth over, the lateral incisor. Oh. So the central incisor was 1.618 times the width of the lateral incisor, the next tooth over. Wonderful. Give me some more uh, examples. Your, the, um, the, your fingers are each called phalanges, uh. and each bone of the finger is called a phalanx. And the phalanx that's most, the closest to your knuckle here, is 1.618 times the, uh, the phalanx that's in the middle. And that's 1.618 times the length of the phalanx at the end, which is fingernail. So that was kind of amazing. This number would come up over and over again. Beauty is almost a law of the universe, built in to engage us emotionally with our environment and those around us. It fuels us to strive for an ideal. When a young junior senator from Massachusetts decided to run for president in 1960, Few believed it possible. He was Roman Catholic for one, many thought he'd be subject to the Vatican. He was a decorated war hero, but it wouldn't be enough to win the culturally stagnant South. Against advice, he campaigned with his opponent, a large senator from Texas with a penchant for pissing in the parking lot of the House office building. Running against him was the then vice president, a no nonsense conservative with a throne to inherit. The VP's knee was scraped getting into his limousine weeks before and had become infected. But despite his physical ailments, he was confident that his political prowess and experience would carry him through the election. Each man would appear in the first televised presidential debate at CBS studios. With 70 million Americans watching from the comfort of their own homes, they mounted the stage. John F. Kennedy, the younger of the two, appeared calm and healthy with his smile and suntan magnetic even in the black-and-white projection. Backstage, he'd accepted the studio's suggestion for makeup. Richard Nixon, on the other hand, waved the makeup staff away, afraid of appearing effeminate in front of the television audience. Sickly, he clung to the podium as the stage lights mercilessly beat at his clammy skin. JFK, relatively unknown, became an overnight sensation. People could now judge our leaders by what they looked like. On the radio, it sounded like Nixon had won. He answered all the right questions in all the right ways. But ultimately, he still lost. Now, if beauty has to do with health, it appeared that Nixon was unhealthy. Dabbing his face from sweat, a five o'clock shadow darkening his mouth. JFK, on the other hand, had clear skin with boyish good looks. The program might as well have been on mute. The winner was so clear from home. Before the age of television, nothing like this was possible. People just didn't know what the president looked like. A few years earlier, we had a president in a wheelchair, the fattest president we've ever had, and a president who was blind in one eye. Beauty has many canvases, the human body being one of them. But of course, it's a part of so much more. Art is the vehicle for beauty. It is man's interpretation of that which occurs naturally. We create out of our own beauty. This could be sculpting, drawing, dancing, acting, sewing, or painting. Starting in the 1600s, it was fashionable for women of a royal court to be immortalized in a so-called gallery of beauty, a series of paintings that recorded the most beautiful women of the time. There were the Windsor beauties, all milky-skinned, wide-eyed, with low-cut, extravagant dresses designed to accentuate the collarbone. Then the Hampton Court beauties, commissioned by Queen Mary II of England. Again, pearly white skin, big eyes, but with hair slightly higher. Finally, Joseph Styler painted the Bavarian Gallery of Beauties. There were 36 portraits in all, each chosen by the Bavarian king, Ludwig I. The interesting thing about this group is a few of the women lived long enough to be photographed, one of which was Lola Montes, Ludwig's mistress. In each of these galleries, the women exemplify one standard, an almost mythical ideal. They wanted to be Circassian. Circassia lies in the Northern Caucasus Mountains in Europe, and most of its history is quite unremarkable. But in that time, there were rumors that the Circassian women were the most beautiful women on the planet. They were said to be vibrant and graceful, which made them excellent concubines. Enlightenment writer and philosopher Voltaire described the Circassian beauties in his letters on the English, a memoir of his time in England. The Circassians are poor and their daughters are beautiful and indeed it is in them they chiefly trade. They furnish with those beauties the seraglio of the Turkish sultan, and all of those who are wealthy enough to purchase and maintain such precious merchandise. These maidens are very honorable and virtuously instructed how to fondle and caress men, are taught dances of very polite and effeminate kind, and how to heighten by the most voluptuous artifices the pleasures of their disdainful masters for whom they are designed. Due to the popularity of this belief, the Circassian name was used to sell beauty products. Advertisements from the 18th century for hair dye and perfume stated that the Circassians don't get all their charm from nature alone. Of course, behind all of this is the stench of racial hierarchy. It wasn't until the Civil War came and shook up that hierarchy that the myth began to evolve. Nowadays, men and women alike are sold things, anything from fast food to car insurance, with celebrities and models, the ideal people telling us we can't live without XYZ so we can be just like them. That's what's so important about how you answered one of the first questions I asked. Why is it you find anyone beautiful? The mystery of beauty lies in this, that it is our emotional connection to the universe around us. It engages us to make beauty of our own. We disguise our facial features with minerals and force our bodies to obey us with straps and laces, buttons and tights. We want to appear a certain way, and we want our world to do the same. The beauty of the body before was made by applying things externally. Now we strive internally. Diets, eating disorders, and exercise fads do the work that corsets did 120 years ago we look back and think of how silly all of the cosmetics were but will someone not look back on us and do the same looking back at the 1960 presidential election it's easy to say americans were dumb to choose purely on the beauty of one man but that's simplistic socrates argued that physical beauty couldn't be trusted that the beautiful does not always promise the good and in today's world where we're constantly sold things that's definitely true Our political candidates have to be adept at selling themselves and their vision for America, and the better salesman often wins. But maybe, at the intersection of the good and beautiful, we may find a better way forward. Thank you for listening. Circa is written and recorded by me and produced by my good friend, Michael Cottrell. Today's episode was a Circa surplus from Season 1. Consider it a bonus episode. And mark your calendar. Season 2 officially starts on August 13th. Be sure to subscribe or leave a review in the meantime. And remember, you are history.